We've run out of space. All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Tapping out of retro. Better than elite. And Subor Famicoms. These stories and more coming up on today's show. Up to date news for out of date tech. Hello. Hello, Dave. Hello, Chris. Another week of retro. Hello. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, it's been a great week. Oh, jo- Johnny has already joined us <gasps> on the show. For those who are watching the video, Dave's cat Johnny is straight in today. Um, I have had Gizmo in already scratching my legs as we prep for the show, but she's she's gone now, so I think I'm good. Cats anyway, a good week of retro. Um, here in the cave, I have uh, been working on building the new lab, which I've talked about, I think, on and off for ages. But finally... The CLS has arrived, the wood, we've carried it all upstairs, we've started building the walls, the cladding's on the way, it's all happening. Um, Accelerated massively by the fact that the end of the financial year is looming. So so, uh, (laughs) the money that I've saved to do this has to be spent or it'll all be gobbled up by the tax man. So that's uh, that's put put my foot down and I'll be making videos about that soon to share with you. So that's good. And also we've had the Ted Dabney Experience, who are a podcast I can highly recommend. And um, Dave, you've started listening this week to them. You mentioned them before and I've added them to my podcast app. But do you know when you say that thing, you say, I'll definitely check them out. (laughs) And you have every intention in the world of doing what you say, I'll definitely check it out. And you add them to your podcast app or you mark the video, you subscribe on YouTube, then you don't get around to it. Well, for some reason, I didn't. And in the past week, myself and another one of my friends, Chrissy, we've both started listening to them. They're great. They're absolutely fantastic. They're great. So we were delighted to have them as special guests at the cave for a public day where they did a little talk. That will also be uploaded as a video this week so people can enjoy that. Um, So, yeah, really nice week in the cave. Um, Lots going on. How about you guys? Chris, what have you been up to? Um, Well, first and foremost, my my second issue of Pixel Addict arrived. We're not at the sponsorship slot yet, don't get confused. Um, But as you know, I I got my local um, news agent to order that in specially. And now that they know they can definitely get it in, I have a standing order. And then she rang me today to confirm that they can also get Amiga Addict in. So both are on standing order. So I'm very excited, even though obviously there's a slight lag between English release and Australian, but that's fine. It's all part of the experience for me. Um, was your was your cover disc missing, or did you have to ask your news agent for the cover disc? Well, I don't think there is one on Pixel Addict, but Amiga. Oh, there addicts, definitely is, yeah. Chris. There's oh, is a cover there disc on, on every issue. On, on Pixel, is there? You lie, you lie. No, no, you say you say that because obviously Amiga Addict, they do do a cover disc, but you you download it, and but they put a label inside the magazine so you can stick oh, it I on. See. So yeah, ah, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that that's that's fantastic to have. Uh, but also, I've just been. Continuing to get into, I've got a fresh install of Workbench on my A1200. What I've been getting busy with is basically seeing what I can actually install to the hard drive. And I know you experienced this, Neil, in terms of as growing up, you didn't have a hard drive for your Amigas. So this is sort of kind of a new experience. And so Deluxe Paint 4, obviously, you have to copy across manually, disk for disk, whereas things like Wordsworth 2, which I've installed, has its own install procedure. So yeah, just been getting into the differences between that and and the DOS era PCs, basically, which is yeah, quite I mean, interesting. This isn't this isn't exclusive to Amiga in any way, but when when mm. it comes to setting things like like this up, often in the places you look for help, there's an assumed knowledge. There's a, there's kind of an assumption yeah. that you have mm. thirty years of knowledge under your belt, and when they say, "Oh, just do X Y Z," yeah, you know, you would know what they're talking about. 
No, I always used floppy disks on my Amiga. I didn't have a hard disk. Take me through the basics. Let's start from the beginning. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, it's good that you're 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 feeling things out and learning. Yeah. Dave, how's fun. your week been? My week's been quiet. I've been listening to the as I say the Ted Dabney experience, which um, I'm really I'm really impressed. It actually made me a little bit embarrassed about our podcast in comparison to how <laughs> uh, well researched <laughs> and professional theirs is. Um, I'm a chancer in comparison. But other than that, I've I've, I've been um, I've not been up to much at all. Just the week rushes in. It's just a, between the one week and the next, it's just a few days, and then we're recording again. Ready for some housekeeping, then, Dave. Yes, we are. Housekeeping Let's time. Pick a jingle. Two. The wonderful. Two. The wonderful. This is a space special episode, as you heard from Neil's trap line. And what happened was, I picked my story first this week. Uh, I'm quite excited about it. Uh, I was really looking forward to talking about it. And then Chris had this wonderful idea. Why don't we do a space special? And I said, well... I'd like to say yes, but remember that you guys need to pick space stories. I don't want to tell you that you have to pick space stories. Chris said, no, no, we'll do a space story. Neil's like, uh, okay. How did that go, guys? There were no space stories. <laughs> yeah, you took the I only have, space story. I have the word space in my story, so look out for that. <laughs> um I would like to re- I would like to uh, welcome four new patrons. Um Thank you very much to Laura, to Vincent, to Samuel, and to Guybrush Loves Tesla, um, <laughs> who sent us a, a nice little message. And he also mentioned on his message that he is the guy that introduced us to Daddy Mulk. Remember Daddy oh, Mulk? Everybody? He has a lot to answer for. Yes. <laughs> <He> certainly does. <laughs> if you'd like to join them, if you would like to join them, then uh, go to www.patreon.com slash this week in retro. Thank you very much for joining in, guys. Thank you. And on with the show. Our first topic for discussion today was posted by Dr. Local and links to a story published in the Metro titled, I sold my retro video games to buy a PS5 and PSVR 2. The article starts off with video games are expensive. I don't think that's going to be any kind of revelation to anyone reading this, uh, that or the fact that times are tough at the moment. And while there's tons of super tempting stuff around, it's wiser to keep expenses to a minimum right now, which was a problem for me because I really wanted a PlayStation 5 and a PlayStation VR 2 even though that was going to cost well over a grand once you threw in some games. Yeah, not cheap. So that in itself is worth reflecting on because um, I still find, I don't know about you guys, but I still find myself slipping into the mindset where I think a games console should be £199 new, maybe 299 at a push. And then with a couple of years, within a couple of years, it's £99. It's, it's reduced and it's flying off the shelves at a reduced price. Now let's let's compare that to where we are today. A PlayStation 5, Retails now at £389 for the basic digital-only model. Chris is shaking his head there, but hang on. Um, you'll be tipping into four or £500 by the time you've added some extras, which on the face of it sounds outrageous. But if I put £199 in of, of 1990, yeah, 1990 money, let's go there, into an inflation calculator, guess what comes out? £450 of 2023 money, and £99 comes out at £250 of today's money. So that gives us some some context there. Cutting-edge games consoles cost about the same as they ever have when we allow for inflation. 
And so this chap in the story wants to add a PSVR 2 headset to it. So that's going to add about £500 on top of the cost. And that's how you get to around the £1,000 mark. But it's not a like-for-like comparison because PSVR 2 is a peripheral. It's an extra cost. And you could have done that back in the day as well with something like a I don't know, a 32X or a mega CD, you know, they would have been about the cost of the console again to add those on. So our writer needed to find about a thousand pounds and had a look around uh, what he had. And conveniently, he found his copy of Earthbound and he said it was valued. And when I say valued, I mean, he looked on eBay to see what it was selling for on there or not even selling for just listed for on there. Um, So he said it was valued or it was worth about three thousand pounds. And that prompted him to go through the rest of his collection of Pokemon, Radiant Silver Gun, all the various titles that are mentioned in the article, and consider if keeping them on the shelf was more valuable to him than selling them to fund a PlayStation 5 setup. He goes on to say, I was stuck in a conundrum in that while I want to pull my weight and there's no use having things stuck around the house that you never play, some of these have sentimental value. And I have to admit, I just like to know I've got them sitting there on the shelf. So something I think we can all relate to. Um, the conclusion in the article was that he would he would sell up, um, not everything, but he would sell up a selection of his most valuable items to get the PS5. And if that's a decision that brings more happiness into his life and into the lives of the people who had a chance to buy his items, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that, Dave. But fast forward three or four years, the PlayStation 5 is going to be worth a lot less than what he paid for it. The VR technology, I've got a feeling VR technology will depreciate fairly quickly as well. And in, in maybe five, ten years' time, the PlayStation will be worth 50 quid or something. And he won't have the games that he sold for it, which would have held their value. True, but what's what's more important? I know, um, I know. Holding on to I'm not saying he made a mistake. I'm, I'm just saying it. Having fun. I'm not saying he made a mistake, but I'm just saying that um, selling old stuff to buy new stuff uh, like that, I guess, that depreciates. Yeah. yeah. He is the one that brings up value and worth in the article. So if he's yeah, thinking along he, those he lines. Might, he might then feel in five or 10 years' time, um, I sold my, my expensive things. I mean, if you were to tell me that you sold your entire Ultimate collection and you bought a. You sold your whole Ultima Connect collection. You bought two games for it for your PS2. You might regret it now. True. You're not. You're not thinking fourth dimensionally, Dave. All he needs to do when <laughs> he gets bored of his PS5 is put it back in the box and hold on to it for thirty years, and then he'll get what he paid for it. <laughs> well, none I'm of the winning. games will work because they're all be digital only. <laughs> so what, have what, no did games. You, what did you do with the money from your Ultima collection, Neil? Uh, well, I can explain that in just a moment. I, I will come on to my own collection history. Um, but yeah, I did actually pick up a, an empty PS5 box a, a month or so back, I think I shared with you, that somebody had left out uh, with the rubbish. There was a mint PS5 box with the stand for the console in there and all the instructions. And I thought, I'm not having that. And that's going in the museum. And it came out as a prop uh, when I did the kids' half-term history of gaming to get them excited you know a magnavox odyssey box next to a ps5 box was a nice contrast so um yeah but the way things are going that box will be worth something one day <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah th- this whole story i mean it's not a particularly meaty story in the metro but it's a nice discussion point and it got got me thinking about a, a decision that probably all of us have to make at times throughout our life as collectors. The biggest example of my own, I've probably mentioned before, is that my very first retro collection, which consisted of a lot of really nice box systems, which 
when I purchased them, you know, you could pick up things like in a fully loaded Amiga 1200 for 50 quid, and I did. Um, I had not a complete, but a nearly complete Ultima collection. Um, I had a, a Jammer arcade cabinet again, which I'd picked up for 50 pounds, including the monitor. Um, all of this had to be sold. Now, in my case, it wasn't because I wanted the latest and greatest console. And I don't, I don't think that would have tipped the scales for me. Um, in my case, it was because a relationship breakdown happened and I wanted to keep a roof over my head and uh, I had to get money somehow. And that money was sat there. And I was, I was really grateful. It's an extreme example, but I was really grateful to have filled my loft with retro systems at the time. Some of them went to museums who wanted to buy them, which I thought was really cool. And it helped me get through a difficult time financially. And dare I say it, this might overlap a little bit with a chat that you had two episodes ago where I wasn't um, on the episode. You, you dipped into mental health and you know discussing the hobby from that side of things. At that point in my life, it probably helped me to dust off some mental cobwebs and focus on the future a little bit more acutely at a time when I really needed to do that by jettisoning items that represented the past and nostalgia. So um, it was good from a financial point of view. I think it was the right thing to do from a mental health point of view at the time. Now, fast forward to today, and it's a very different story because all of the retro I surround myself with, I hope, represents my future now as part of a museum and, and the channel and everything else that I do. But I do also get that comforting hug of nostalgia from the items that surround me that anyone who is in this hobby gets when they collect at home and they look at what they've got and all the things that feel familiar and nostalgic and lovely. I get that too. So I guess my question to you guys is, would you sell? Have you sold? When is it okay to sell? And have you ever regretted selling something from your collection? All of these <laughs> questions and more. Discuss. Go. Let's let's um, wind Dave up like a wind-up toy and put him on the carpet and let him go. Go, Dave. <laughs> um, last year, last year I sold my Amstrad CPC 664, which is the very rare kind of, of Amstrad. It was sold to me as new old stock, and it was in mint condition. There was not a single bit of wear in it. It was all perfectly coloured, as if it had just arrived, fresh from the factory back in 1985. I sold it because I prefer using the 6128. The 6128 is a better one to use. The 664 is, is better looking. It looks lovely. But the 6128 is better to use, and I, w I simply wasn't going to use the 664, so I sold it for that reason. And at the same time, I sold an MT32, although mine was actually the MT100, which is the MT32 upgraded with a disk drive. And I sold my, my Roland Sound canvases as well, because although I could use both of them together and connect them up, the MT32 Pi was better. Uh, the MT32 Pi can be whichever... MT32 you want it to be, or it can be the, the slightly upgraded one with sound effects as well. So the MT32 was going to, Pi was going to be used while, while those other two weren't. And although they're, they're nice looking, they were worth a bit. So I sold both of those as well as a 664. And I didn't really buy anything with them. I don't think I can point at something and say, well, if I hadn't, if I hadn't sold them, I'd, I wouldn't have been able to buy this. It just paid down some credit card debt that I had um, from buying too much retro in general. <laughs> yes. I don't, I don't actually regret. I mean, if, if I had all the money in the world and have the 664 on a shelf somewhere in an even bigger house, but I don't have all the money in the world. I don't have a big enough house to have it. So I've no regrets about that. Neil? With the Amstrads in particular, did you find yourself at a crossroads where you thought, I've got the 664, I've got the 6128. You've probably got a 464 as well, have you, in your collection? Yeah, I, I, I was. And you're right. I had, yeah. I had all so, three. I had the... 
Well, you say you had all three. The the next step would be to find a four seven two, and then and then start <laughs> to find the plus range as well, and then the GX four thousand. Did you find yourself thinking, well, actually, maybe I want to be a completionist before you sell no. them? No, okay. no, no. I've got the attitude that if I can't have it plugged in and ready to use, I shouldn't have it. <laughs> so I now have a, an Amstrad six one two eight, a GX four thousand, and a, a Sinclair spectrum plus three so all three amstrad machines all connected together through a scart switch and all plugged in so that i can use any one of the three through the same speakers nice and easily immediately without any problems um i did have the 464 as well the 464 plus the fd1 and ddi1 so i had it upgraded to a disk drive so essentially um, a 664 then <laughs> and i had the memory expansion for both as well so right I, that they were all upgraded and actually preferred the aesthetic of a machine upgraded that way with all the additional peripherals, the peripherals I did to the 6128, but the 6128 is more compatible with 128K games because of the way it's done and there's extra things it has that you can't really upgrade to with all peripherals. So I, I, I don't regret selling them. Um, and and my, my ethos has to be sell what you won't use, keep what you will, and don't think about the costs of things that you're using and you like having. Don't think too much. Don't dwell about the cost. Don't make retro about money. Make retro about enjoyment and a, a nice thing that you enjoy doing. I think if you focus too much on the money, it, it can um, you can end up going down down uh, unpleasant routes. Hmm. You mentioned that you don't have any regrets about selling ever, any of this. Let's look at it the other way. Do you have any buyer's remorse about any particular item? That you have yes okay, yes go on yes i bought a star wars yoke recently oh this is and okay and we heard about you waiting for this to be delivered and the yeah. excitement of it coming so it's arrived so, what, what's wrong with it dave i'm too busy to have done anything with it. <laughs> I've got too many things going on i've said i'm not going to start i don't have any i'm not going to start using this until i get some some things dealt with and even then it's got this desk mount that, that you're supposed to you're supposed to put onto a mount onto a desk, and any desks that I've got in the house are almost too big for it, but they mm. do fit on, and it doesn't clamp down properly. Right. So I've tried just using it, and it just shuffles off the desk. So I, the, the desk mount is 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 not fit. Well, it's not fit for for my purpose at least. Mm. It may be that a, a slimmer desk it will mount properly to and won't move, but I don't have a slimmer desk to use it on. So I'm now I'm now puzzling what will I have to do with that? But I I put it to one side and I've said no I I I need to sort out my my firewall machine. I've got other things to do. Once I've sorted out all those things, I'll do that. But it's another project that I've bought that I'm not really ready for, and I got it because it was on a discount. So maybe later I won't regret it. But at the moment I'm thinking. I could have done without doing that right now. <laughs> it's always the way with those kind of controllers. I find you're all excited about getting it and your intended use, but then actually setting it up becomes a burden, and it's something you have to set up and then put away because it's in the way. Same with racing oh. controllers or whatever. So I, I built a, a racing seat for the Logitech mm -hmm. G27 when I had one of those. So I think the solution, Dave, is you need to build yourself an X-wing. <laughs> well, if I had the room, I would. I would owe lots of money. I would, but I've got, I've got, I bought a, a machine to put a meme on to use this. So I've got a, a brilliant deal on this, this little sort of small form factor thing. And I've got an idea in my head of running a, a loom of cables between it and the monitor, and putting the power bar on the back of the monitor, mounting it to the back, and the and the power supply for it, so that all the cables from the the PC go directly to the monitor, and making it easier to put to assemble and disassemble and all the rest of it. Mm. 
but I still haven't worked out exactly where I'm going to put this this mount because if it doesn't mount securely and it moves when I try and use it, what's the point? Yeah. So I'm, you, I'm, I'm a bit a bit disappointed that. Can you believe it, Chris? After all of our talks, after all of these episodes, it's starting to look more and more likely that Dave is going to be the first one out of us to build a flight simulator. Well, this is true. <laughs> Probably in a, an X-wing simulator, but yeah. <laughs> True. Chris, tell us about your collection and your, your history of collecting and all of that. Yeah, well, but, I mean, this kind of thing hasn't come up much for me yet because my target, my collecting, sorry, is very targeted, as I've mentioned many, many times, you know, just trying to Stay recollect things from my past. Stay on target. Yeah, nice. <laughs> See, there's space throughout all the stories, isn't there? I think we're doing well on this space special. Um, I did recently pick up, how many was it? Um, about eight PlayStation 1 games from a local charity shop simply because they were there and it's so rare to see a nice pickup like that and they were like $1.50 each. I couldn't leave them there and I even picked up a couple of PSP games for the same price. But my intention with that is, I mean, I, I don't even have a PS1 right now but I just couldn't leave the games there. So PS1s are, are very cheap to get hold of. I have nostalgia towards some PS1 games, not these ones in particular. So my intention with those is to give them a quick play and then probably to pass them on, I dare say, at a profit, Neil? I think that is a big problem with where we are in our collecting is we almost feel a responsibility to buy these things, like mm. like a stray cat in the street. We see sort of a, a PS1 game in a charity shop. Uh, unless it's a FIFA game, I'm normally like, oh, I, sh- <laughs> no I should FIFA, probably no get FIFA. that. You know, it's only 50p. I should probably get that. I'm never going to play it, rarely going to play it. Yeah, um, yeah. There were yeah. some nice titles in there, like MDK, Gran Turismo. Um, can't remember the others, but they're in there. A Warhammer, a couple of Warhammer games. They're, sure. they're pretty good titles, you know. But anyway, um, the only other time I have sold stuff on, but again, not necessarily to fund something, but simply because it's superf- superfluous to my needs, is if I've bought games in bulk. So, you know, if somebody sold me, say, a lot of 10 games, I'm looking at the games going, okay, well, I can keep those five and then the rest I'll sell on. But what I tend to do there is I tend to sort of equate how much each game has cost me just by dividing the number of games by what I've paid and therefore pass them on to the community because I'm talking about Amiga games now, pass them on to the local community at that same dollar value, if that makes sense. So it's not subsidizing my other purchases. It's literally just passing on the saving to somebody else of the games that I, I don't require. Um, sometimes I double think that because maybe I, you know, there's nothing wrong with making a bit of, of money on the side if you know you're charging what that game is now worth um but yeah that's the only time I've, I've needed to move stuff on but again not like the the writer of this stories has to to fund a modern purchase so and this is where the irony comes in for me is because the tv that, that you know that people watching on youtube will see this tv behind me every week 65 inch 4k tv nothing special but it's the best tv i've had in a long time it was specifically purchased ready for the release of the PS5. I do not have a PS5. Uh, and what, what happened was, I mean, we all know the story in terms of when they first came out, then all the scalpers jumped on and were buying up all the stock and it just became too hard. So there was that instant block there. It was just too hard to get hold of one. And then I got to the point where I just didn't care for one. I've got the PS4, that's working fine. I've got the PSVR1 and that's working fine. And to be honest, if I was going to spend that kind of money now, I would probably get a MetaQuest 2, I hate to say, because then I could use that on my PC to do some flight sims, some Elite Dangerous, that kind of stuff. And um, 
I've actually spent more money than I could have spent on a PS5 on things like, you know, the A1200 and the CD32 combined, not individually, but combine the, the values of those two. And that's where my money's gone. And I've got zero regrets there. So I think maybe I'm at the wrong stage of collecting. I'm not at the selling and evaluating where I could get some money and buy something nice and modern. Uh, I'm still at the, the, the stage of buying the nice stuff from, from yeah. 30 years ago. And I think an advantage of being in the hobby that we are in is I do not get any kind of urges like I used to when I was a younger man for the latest and greatest console when it comes out. I'm so far behind on modern gaming that if you gave me a PS4 today, I would think it was cutting edge and it would blow my mind. Uh, (laughs) Never mind a PS5. And that actually works really well because I can enjoy modern gaming or what's modern to me at, at a budget because everyone else is moving on to the next thing. So it's not a bad position to be in. Um, as for selling a three, th- I mean, if I had a game that was worth £3,000, like the example that's given in the um, in the story, that's a tough one because £3,000 is a lot of money and you can do a lot more than buying a playstation with it you know you can make a you you can go on a huge family holiday you can pay off a chunk of your mortgage you know these are big decisions Mm, dave you're bouncing up and down how do you feel then i'll throw this in here if you're a three thousand pounds game in your shelf let's say you had ultima 2 on your shelf and for some reason ultima 2 is worth three thousand pounds how would you feel about making your own reproduction of it for your own use and selling the original and having the reproduction if you ever wanted to play it and take it out and look at what it was look, what, what it looked like how do you feel about that is that worth doing are you conning yourself is it as good as having it is it better off three thousand pound in your pocket what do you think it's the same as asking me would you buy a limited run games version of a, a lucas arts game that you know that you can buy elsewhere did you no <laughs> did i what, what do you think what do you think i did um so we're talking about monkey island here are we they had monkey island they had loom they had they had sam and max yeah yeah sam and max um did you i'm gonna say you didn't you're right i didn't i didn't no no (laughs) didn't because i felt the price was just too too it's not it's not because it was new i just felt the price was 220 pounds i thought do you know I'll regret every time I look at that on the shelf. I won't see. I'm glad I bought that. I'll say I regret getting scalped for 120 pounds in that when there was. There's just no justification for it. Yeah. So when it comes to reproductions, I think that's a very personal thing. It it doesn't doesn't work for me. But as games become more and more and more expensive to collect, then for many it will be the only option. Just like for mm. many, having a, a miniature version of an arcade cabinet is the only option for both monetary and space reasons. So again, it all comes down to enjoyment. If you get enjoyment out of that, no problem. Personally, um, yeah, probably not for me at the moment, but uh, that may change. Anyway, um, it, it's, a, it's a discussion that could go on forever, and, and <laughs> I don't think we're going to come to any kind of conclusion, but it's interesting to hear your own personal thoughts. And those of the listeners, if you'd like to um, leave a comment on the story in our subreddit, head over to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, or you can also join our Discord, dino.gg forward slash rmc retro where there is a this week in retro room in there and all of the other rooms where you can chat to um, cave dwellers, twirlers, um, Chris, do you have a name for your listeners or your viewers? No. Agamers. <laughs> Agamers. I should think of one, shouldn't I? Backwards yeah. Amiga owners. <laughs> Zeros. <laughs> Backwards Amiga owners. Yes. 
Oh dear, and that's um, the end of my it's a bit channel. Redundant, that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, come and join us, join in the discussions, and you can also find a link to the Metro article in the show notes. Should we, we talk sponsored. about? Oh God, we've already, <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, we've already talked. God. Okay, everyone listening, don't cut that out, Duncan. It's the sponsorship slot, and we've started by talking over each other. Now I started so, talking because I had something important to say, which is we've completely failed to realise, and someone pointed this out on Discord this week. Pixel Addict doesn't come out once a month, Dave. No, no, <laughs> it comes out once every six weeks, and nobody told, nobody corrected us. No. Pixel Addict, the people that make the magazine watch this little sponsored slot through their tears and don't tell us. <laughs> yeah. And every time I'm looking at it, it's going, it what, must be time for another issue yet. Let, let's, yeah. let's see if Jonah can give us a preview of what's in the next issue. He's like, oh, no, another couple of weeks yet. Uh, no. Is it Twig? No, no. no. Monthly magazine? No, it's not. So, um, yeah. So, uh, is it fair to say we're slightly annoyed with Pixel Addict this week? Can we be annoyed with our sponsor? Can we be annoyed no. with them? <laughs> this is Earth. This is on us, Neil. It is on us. It is. This is but, so bad. There you go. Chris is actually... Chris is hiding his face with the magazine. I think that's... <laughs> should we just have 30 seconds of Chris reading the mag... No, that won't work on audio, will it? Because um, he can't read. Because I can't read. I just look at the yeah. pictures, guys. They're beautiful <laughs> pictures, though. Pixel Addict is a six-weekly magazine that you can get you can buy you can find it in a shop or you can subscribe online and have delivered or you can get the pdf it is a good read uh, it's more professional than we are and, uh, um chris you, you all you're managing to achieve there is advertising sex on the back of the magazine let's sit that way shall we there we go We're sponsored by pixel addict not by cex buy it Right, chaps, what's the most influential game there has ever been? Just name it. No explanations. Chris? Doom. Neil? Running. <laughs> what? You didn't say video game. No, I didn't. And that's on me. British Bulldog. <laughs> Kiss right. Chase. Be quiet now. Um, I think it's Elite because this is a space episode. Uh, I think it's Elite. Elite is a, a 1984 BBC micro game. It's a British masterpiece from Bell and Braben. Most people will have heard of Elite, I'm sure, but maybe not everyone. Um, and maybe you've heard about it from its later incarnations. But for anyone who needs a reminder, it's a massive free world game where you have a Cobra Mark III spaceship and explore eight galaxies visiting 2048 um, star systems and space stations fighting and trading your way into a powerful upgraded ship and a reputation which can go all the way up to elite. It's a 32 kilobyte game, and that meant the entire universe needed to fit within those 32 kilobytes. And it does that by procedural generations. In other words, it has a seed, and that seed can be used as part of an equation to generate an identical universe every time it's played. The actual game Elite is based in a 1974 game Star Trader, but it's it's much more expanded and it's added arcade-style combat to it. And it's one of the most um, influential games for me because it's one of the first games I saw on a microcomputer round at my friend's on his BBC and then again on a borrowed BBC and then finally playing it for a long time on my own CPC and then again on my ST and then again on my PC with Elite, Elite... Um, Frontier and First Encounters. 
I've never actually played Elite Dangerous, uh, but that, that, that's not what we're going to talk about today, Elite Dangerous. Now, the original game is actually fairly limited, but shouldn't be a surprise for a 1984 game in 32 kilobytes. And it leans very heavily on the player's imagination. And that was helped for me by the novella, The Dark Wheel, um, and also by the manual that came with the game that described all the backstory with the ships. So when I played Elite, my brain was doing a little bit of heavy lifting to get me to enjoy more than was actually present in the game. So it was more in the game, more in my head going on than was actually in the game. Now, there's been recent improvements to Elite, and the first isn't in the story submitted by Pajaco today. It's Flicker Free Elite. So BBC Elite used a 6502 processor, the same one you'd find, um, well, almost the same one that you'd find in a Commodore 64. And sadly, the BBC and Commodore 64 versions had flickering ships. And I think players got used to that eventually. Uh, but I think it's mildly annoying. And if you're new to the game or if you bring it back up after a long time, you'll notice the flicker. But someone's found a clever alternative way to draw ships uh, and other objects in the games. And you can now play Elite Flicker Free. Um, I think it's a big improvement for anyone wanting to get back into the game, Neil. Um, but today's submission, today's submission, uh, thank you, Neil, again, for editing the script and trying to get me to say a rude word, which didn't work, Neil, because I'm a professional, <laughs> unlike you. Uh, today's submission is about another modification to the Beeb and C64 original. So it now requires a BBC Master or a B with a tube expansion or a C64, and it's a hack of the game, and it allows a few things and something really, really special. Now, the instructions say, compose your universe by placing ships, planets, suns, and space stations anywhere within the local bubble with a fully featured 3D editor that uses the game's original interfaces and key presses that will be familiar to players of BBC Micro Elite. Edit the many different attributes for each ship, such as AI, ship personality, speed, turn rates, laser fire, missiles, ECM, station type, planet type, and so on. Save and load universe files, and play your universe by jumping straight into the game engine with your chosen universe laid out around you. Build a scenario and watch it come to life, or load one of the sample universes that come bundled with the editor. And this is where I got really delighted. This is where the, the really exciting bit is. Do you remember the, the BBC Micro box art for Elite, which I'm sure Duncan will put up now for us? It showed a very it showed a screenshot of Elite that was very busy. There was loads of ships there and lots going on, and it wasn't possible in the game. It was it was fake. But thanks to this, you can now create that scenario, and they've actually got it there. You can see that scenario real in Elite thanks to this hack. Now, maybe this will open up the game for people again, give people a reason to go back to play it. Um, because I want to go to, back to a point that I made earlier about imagination. The game, in one sense, is incredibly rich and detailed and deep. But on the other hand, it's basic and thin. And it's all subjective. It all depends on what, what's going on in your mind about it. Uh, and you, you, you can explain it one way or you can explain it the other. And as a teenager... Thanks again, Neil. This game soaked up hundreds of hours of my life. And that's what I want to talk about today. It's the capacity of retro games to be far, far greater than the sum of their parts. Um, the best example is maybe text adventures. I'm thinking of that famous Infocom advert 
uh, which is a picture of the human brain and the headline, we unleash the world's most powerful graphics technology, with the idea being that your mind creates better images than they could on, on games. But it's not just that. Even going into the, the mid-90s with DOS games, they didn't fill in all the gaps, and they left plenty of room for your imagination. Of course, then we had talkies, and then we had cut scenes, and then we had some modern games, which are so busy and packed with things going on, that you don't have time for any imagination. It's all there on the screen for you. Now, Neil, what do you think? What's your thoughts on Elite? And is there a sweet spot for games and imagination? Is there a, is there a point where th this is right or is it, is, it, is it about how well the game's done? Well, um, I'm a little bit disappointed that you're not Ron Burgundy enough, uh, Dave, and just read exactly what I inject into the, uh, the show notes there. Um, and I've also noticed one other thing while you've been talking is that my shirt mm -hmm. has a lot of green in it. Um, so if I look like, well, a, be interesting. If I look like yeah. a human colander today, for those watching the video, that that's why. Um, but yeah, uh, my first question would be, have you played Elite Dangerous? No. Oh, okay. Chris, have you played no. Elite Dangerous? Yes, you have, I mean, haven't this, you? This one. On, yeah, there you go. He's on PlayStation on 4, because I don't have a PlayStation 5, and on PC, yes. So, I mean, that's a nice direct comparison between the modern and the old version of Elite. So my question to anyone listening would be, do you feel the same about that? Do you feel that the introduction of extra graphics into Elite Dangerous compared to the original Elite takes something away? Now, Elite is a difficult one because it's set in space. Space is a big place, so there are still a lot of gaps to fill while you're, you know, trundling for 45 minutes from one place to another um doing your trading uh, and you have the extra layer of vr as well which is very nice as well um I, I guess the novelty wears off eventually but it's very immersive in that sense um but um i, I don't want to be the the guy that goes old games were always better no matter what on this topic because i know i know where you're coming from but I think mm. the wealth of game releases these days means that you can find games that give you the space to think and, and games that give you blanks to fill in. But that tends to be found in places places where it was found even before video games, and that's just storytelling. So even with amazing graphics, if the story gives you space to reflect and think about the reality that the game presents you in, then your mind is going to try and bridge the gaps, and that's just like any good book or any good movie. Um, and I don't think you will have ever said movies look so realistic now i preferred it when they were stick figures in movies and i could imagine what they looked like you know probably not we we do mock low budget movies but if the story is good enough those low budget movies become cult movies that everyone loves and we mock high budget movies that have got a bad story so it's a tricky one and and, and the realism in games is taking us to exactly the same place as movies now as we get more and more movie like to coin a, a term that um, the games industry loves to use what I do hate is holding, um, is hand holding, hand holding in games. So I think this is why I've always leaned towards sandbox style games and maybe even flight simulators over the years. Because if you've got a feeling of freedom in this world and, and a, free, a freedom of how you approach things, which you certainly have in Elite and you have in Elite Dangerous, then um, you yourself become much more a part of the storytelling. Uh, the, you know, much more part of what's playing out on the screen and you fill in the blanks in your head. So I think the absolute worst games for me are those which force you to follow a path. And then if something interesting happens, it turns into a cutscene where you have to press a series of buttons. You know, those ones where it oh, yeah. pops up, it becomes all cinematic and you've got to press A, B, you know, up, down mm. at the right time. And if you fail, it just takes you right back to the start of that particular sequence and you have to do it over and over again. Into I hate that as a trend. Mm. Um, Hopefully that trend is passing, but it was around for quite a long time. 
So anyway, yes, I think old games require imagination to get the best out of them. I think new games should engage with your imagination and not dictate to it um, to be the best games that they can. And I think it's not a it's not a black and white situation here. It's not it's not old or new. Um, it's just good storytelling or bad storytelling. Yeah, I think you're right about the storytelling, Neil. I think I think you're right about that, and I do want to make sure I don't come across as saying old good, old is good and new is bad, and it's just as as, as plain as that. I love I've said in the previous episodes, I love environmental storytelling in games. I love being able to see or not see little extra bits of the story that are there. If you look in corners or if you read, you pick up the journal, you pick up a little bit more information than what you need, but it tells a little bit of story. It helps you, it puts a seed in for your imagination to find other things in it. Here's a question. Back as at one point in um, game development, particularly with things like the point-and-click adventure games, we would often be told how great this game was because there were multiple paths, because there were different ways of playing it. How many times did you actually go back and replay it to discover those paths? Or did you just complete these things once? Take something like Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Did you play through it and go, okay, I enjoyed that, that's done? Or did you go back and play it again? So I wouldn't play a game to go through the different paths back then, but I'm fairly sure I've done it with games like Skyrim and like Bioware RPGs because you get a different story if you do it that way. I don't think solving a puzzle in Fate of Atlantis, for example, in two different ways, I don't think that will give you a different story. But if you're playing a Bioware game or you're playing um, Skyrim, for example, and you, you play as a, a stealth archer, because we all end up playing stealth archers in it by accident. But if you play, if you if you play a mage or something in it, you might get a different, a completely different experience than you would otherwise. But yeah, yeah so um, that comes yeah. back again to it being a little bit more sandbox like and allowing you the yeah. freedom to explore those yeah. stories that partly you're making up yourself, partly the um, the game is filling in for you. Yeah, yeah. Chris. No, it's an interesting discussion, and and what we've segued into is a not what I've put in my notes at all, but a discussion about how modern games do handhold you. And I recently finished um, Wolfenstein: The New Order. Um, no, it's not a space game; it's a first person shooter. But bear with me here. I put that game down for the longest time simply because I was at this point mid game where literally it just seemed like cutscene after cutscene after cutscene, and storytelling had got in the way. It's a freaking first person shooter. Now, you, you um, look at something like Half-Life, which I think is a great example of a game that tells you the story without breaking the immersion. You're still in control of who you interact with, what corners you look around, like you were saying, Dave. Um, Doom Doom 3 does a similar thing. Yep, yeah, go on. I, I, if I'm going to criticise modern games for the cutscenes, hmm. it often turns into... Um, a game where you are clicking through cutscenes because just let me go yeah. on the game yeah. and then the game comes up and you're following an arrow to get and clicking a few times to get to the next cutscene mm. and you're not getting fun out of the gameplay or the cutscenes. So you're not getting um, the story. I, I yeah. So, yeah, so like so like Bioshock, again, that would be another fantastic example of a story that's worth engaging with, but it doesn't break the immersion, doesn't break the game flow. Um, and... But but this Wolfenstein, The New Order, there, there's this one bit in particular where literally it's a first-person shooter and I'm walking around this base trying to scrape bits of mould off <laughs> of a concrete wall because that's what some characters told me to do. And then there's one bit where you, you, you literally got a cutscene and why is this first-person shooter putting me in third-person suddenly for the sake of a cutscene? Hated that. 
it's a great game. Don't get me wrong. It's actually a great game, but these things mm. break it. But there's there's a cutscene where you're talking to another character, and then you come out of that cutscene, you're in control again, and what's the next thing you're going to do? You're going to walk across the room and press E again, which immediately takes you into another cutscene talking to another character. It was terrible. Other than that, you know, once you get into the action, fantastic, but too much of this breaking it up. Neil? Oh, I was just thinking, I like the idea that Chris is virtually scraping mould off of walls and perhaps his bathroom is dirty and needs a clean. You it know, is. He's, he's just it neglecting is. it. It is, but I found the mould sample in Wolfenstein, so it's fine. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nikki's moaning at me to clean the bathroom. Exactly. Like, oh, she doesn't understand what I'm working with. And look, going back into space games, um, and again, completely going off off piece from my notes here, but, you know, we, we, we've all talked about our love of, x-wing um well myself and dave have anyway um but then you get into squadrons you like it too deal don't you Mm -hmm. yeah 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 but you get into squadrons and it's actually a fantastic game but that too you can tell the storyline almost hinders the action and there's parts in there where you know you're in a hangar and you're expected to speak to every single different character that you see in the hangar to glean more of the story stuff that put me in an x-wing or a tie fighter and let me shoot at stuff that's all i want um, but yeah, in terms of elite, let's go back to that. Um, I, I elite cause I had the acorn electron. I, I'll never forget this. I was in a computer shop, independent computer shop called volunteers. And I was staring for about, it must've been about 10, 20 minutes at the BBC micro copy that they had on the shelf of elite. And what was going through my head was the, the, um, you know, the information that I gleaned from the playground that some BBC micro games can load on the Electron because they both run basic. And when I was Ooh. looking over and over this box going, if I buy it, is it going to work on my Electron? <laughs> of course, the answer is no. I did not waste my money buying a BBC micro game for my Electron. But So I, I actually didn't play the original Elite until the Amiga, um, which, I mean, it's an okay version, um, but, you know, it's... it's um, solid polys rather than the wire frame. And I think there's something very special about this entirely procedurally, you know, generated, um, procedurally generated, sorry, seeded universe in such a finite memory allowance. You know, the Amiga, you know, you got 512K, so of course that, that can pull it off. Um, and even, you know, you think forward to another game which became good, um, No Man's Sky. I, mean, I know it's a modern game, but, you know, lots of issues when it first came out but the whole big push and what everybody was going mad over was there's this entire universe that's been procedurally generated out of a single seed and this is amazing and all i kept thinking about was what's new about that you know (laughs) have you guys not seen what we were doing back in the 80s you know um and even you know you fast forward to elite dangerous one of the bugbears that many players still have is there's no atmospheric landings still whereas we had that in frontier elite 2 and we had that in first encounters way back in the 90s um elite dangerous by the way dave it is worth you playing if for nothing else than the space mechanics turn all the assists off and try and dock in this game (laughs) so much fun so much fun but again going back to you know letting your imagination run wild versus the game taking hold this does it it's open sandbox elite dangerous is complete open sandbox like the original my fear for this is where does it go in the future because my initial disappointment with elite dangerous was you don't you don't have to load it up for long before you realize that even in solo mode it is dependent on a connection to the internet and an update of the ongoing story and narrative so that's why i've not played it that's why where, I've not lo- where does elite I- dangerous go 
in the future when those services eventually get switched off. Yeah. I would have preferred the single-player version. I know it would have limited it, but I would have preferred the solo mode to just be completely self-contained with the update of graphics and the, and the modern universe and the updates to you know our own solar system and those kind of things, which make it great. And this is quite an old game now, let's be honest. Um, but take away that dependence on the network and let this be a thing that lives on in the future and become a future collectible because at the moment it's not. So anyway, that's me on Elite. Fair enough. And one of the reasons I've not played Elite Dangerous is because it's a it's a massively multiplayer online game as far as I can determine. And even playing the single player version of it, you're gonna you're still gonna feel as if you're missing out by not playing that. And I'm not I'm not gonna tempt myself by getting into that because mm-hmm. it would uh, take up all my time. Yeah. Stick to Dwarf um, thank Fortress. You very much. Dwarf Fortress. I'm off Dwarf Fortress. I'm off Dwarf Fortress. I'm all about. I'm all about um, ghosts and ghouls. Ghosts and goblins. Ghosts and goblins. Yes, about, the arcade yes. archive challenge of the month. I'm really, wow, I'm terrible. what a tough game. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Anyway, that's not a space game. That's not a space game. <laughs> it was Wolfenstein, apparently. <laughs> oh no! Wait, you go to the moon in uh, Wolfenstein: A New Order. There you go. There's the connection. There is a whole world of Elite to explore. The BBC had several versions. The disc had more ships than the Tube and then the Master 2. Of course, the best original version is said to be Archimedes Elite. But there's fan mods. There's fan-made successors like Elite and New Kind, etc. Elite and all the info today that I've talked about can be found on a wonderful website, bbcelite.com, which is a really pleasant place to read about it. It's not in your face and all the rest of it. Link in the show notes. Have a look. Enjoy yourself and maybe load up the old Elite and see if you can get it to carry, see if your imagination can carry it for you. Subreddit user G7VFY, still my favorite name on the subreddit, uh, shared a video that piqued my interest. The video is by YouTuber Zeal 8 Bit Computer and it's about a Chinese 8 bit computer launched in 1998 called the SB2000. You may be wondering why I found that interesting and why I simply had to make space for this story that's my only link guys to the space episode sorry oh. that's it that's it all right let's move on oh. oh i know it's poor isn't it anyway anyway it's an 8-bit computer um so you know an 8-bit computer where most of us were firmly playing on our 200 mmx's uh, with 3dfx cards by then if not moving towards a slot one build maybe with an egp based tnt card or something like that as if I listened to last week's episode, isn't it? Um, what actually interested <laughs> or me? Or you listened was, to one minute of it and thought, yeah, I'll one write minute. Some notes I could say, MMX, I listened to the MMX. No, uh, I was, I was jumping up and down because I was like, I remember upgrading my P100 <laughs> to a P200 MMX. I'm like, why am I not in this episode? <laughs> so, oh well, wow. it's all good. Your mum was. <laughs> she so was. You guys, oh, seriously, you have me cracking up. Anyway, <laughs> what interested me about this Chinese computer, okay, was that from the thumbnail in the video, right, it actually looks like a Famicom. And there's a good reason for that. It kind of is. In the video, Omar unboxes a new old stock example and peels off actually the original cellophane around the, the internal polys, which is fantastic. This thing literally comes out looking like a brand new example of this games console. Um, and it looks very much like a Famicom, as I mentioned. And it comes with two controllers that kind of look like white Megatri- Mega Drive controller copies, and they're all branded with the same cute Chinese characters branded in red. Um, and then we un- see a matching mouse 
um, because apparently this is a computer, not a console, and a matching keyboard as well that mysteriously looks very much like a Microsoft ergonomic keyboard, only it isn't, apparently. Um, And that's got an AT connector on it with the same matching branding. And we have a set of eight very pink-looking 3.5-inch discs. As always, uh, watch the original video for all the details, as I don't want to steal content. But yes, this machine by Chinese brand Subar, Subor, they're trying to catch me out in the freaking notes. And I, I, I could go for so long. And then <laughs> they just kept jumping ahead in the notes and changing random words. Oh, dear. We do have fun. Uh, but anyway, Chinese brand Subor, um, it can boot to its own operating system called SB-DOS. It can boot from floppy disks uh, like an Amiga or an Atari ST, um, and it can boot from actual Famicom game cartridges, although with China being PAL, some of the speed issues you know, may well ensue, and you can see that in the, in the original video. So it's got a cartridge slot on top then. Um, on one side, it's got the floppy disk drive, and uh, at the back, you've got the AT connector for the keyboard, you've got a COM connector for the mouse, and you've got a parallel port for, for a printer as well as your AV outs because obviously it's trying to be a PC or, or, or a computer as they call it. The timing is, is really odd with this. I mean, it's an 8-bit machine aimed at children, apparently. So it's a low-cost machine in 1998. But why I actually like this story is because it touches on an itch that I love scratching. And oh, apparently really? the guys have just put in the notes that I should apply some cream <laughs> to, to, to that. But, but no, this itch or this, oh, this, this topic that I love is consoles that could be computers or even, you know, some even promised, you know, that kind of reality but never quite delivered. And I've got one in mind, and I've been wanting to discuss this for ages, but Neil, you first, I think. What are your thoughts on the SB2000 and also on other examples of machines that can't quite decide if they're a console or a computer? Yeah, um, I'm very familiar with um, the company Subal because they came up a lot when I was researching Chinese NES clones and um, uh, Soviet ZX Spectrum clones and things like that. Subal kept coming up, as did NES clones in various guises. I've got one in the cave, which you've seen when you visited, and that's the the one with Jackie Chan's face on it, the, uh, oh, yeah. the Jackie Chan NES. Yeah. So um, the other big name when you talk about Subor is usually Dendi. Dendi and, and Subor absolutely flooded the market with NES clones. And Subor were active until as recently as 2020, I think, when it looks like they went bankrupt at that point. So they were going for a very long time. They were even doing things like a Wii clone or, or not a Wii clone, a Famiclone that looked like a Wii and, you know, had Wii-like controllers and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, because essentially they, they got the Famicom down to just a single chip that they would throw in and anything and everything that they could. So um, this one that you've brought up, it looks very similar to the Jackie Chan one. It's got a wedge-shaped keyboard. It's got a slot for a NES cartridge. Comes with some educational titles. But of course, you'd be playing normal games on it as well. And my understanding or my memory from researching this is that um, the Chinese authorities always took a pretty dim view on too much time spent spent playing video games. They even went as far as to ban, um, not completely ban, because things like the PlayStation 2 did come out there, but 
they they banned um, the import and sale of many types of consoles between the years 2000 and 2015. Alongside that, you had the one child policy that was in place for many years that was eventually lifted entirely in 2021, I think. So you had a lot of pressure put on you to follow that advice and not turn your only child, your one shot at having a child into some kind of gaming monster. But video games always prevailed. Um, They always do. As recently as the end of 2022, I saw this BBC News article where the Chinese government said that games were to blame for uh, rising myopia, or is that how you say it? Myopia? Myopia? Short-sightedness. <laughs> rising short-sightedness. Um, sleep disorders, poor concentration, and mental health problems. All all the, the fault of video games, according to the Chinese government. Um, and so they they continue to do things like restrict under 14s to a maximum of 40 minutes of TikTok use per day. So attitudes today are pretty similar to 40 how minutes they were. of TikTok would be torture. <laughs> it would. <laughs> too much for you, Dave. Too much. Yeah. Um, oh. So attitudes are pretty similar to how they were when the Subor came out. Um, and what you're seeing in this Subor is video games wrapped up as education. So for all that I've said about China and its policies over the years, it's not like we don't see that in the UK or or the US in a slightly different way, in the way that our systems were bundled as educational packages, as games machines with deluxe paint thrown in, as uh, what did the Atari come, Atari STs with word processors thrown in, Dave? And remember, of course, the the computer literacy project that saw the UK diverge quite a, a far distance from what, ha- what happened in the US because we were all told get a microcomputer, learn to program, learn your learn your trade to be in the new computer revolution. And it, you 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 could easily compare what China's doing there with what we did there in the in the eighties and um we were aiming for the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, and we would convince our parents, you know, uh, look at all the yeah. computer literacy stuff. Get me a ZX Spectrum, yeah. and I will you learn. Bought it for your homework because it has a yeah. keyboard on it. I definitely won't play games on it. It just happened oh, no. in a in a slightly less authoritarian way over here. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, here's the funny thing. I've been reading that Subor and Dendi were so prevalent in China and beyond places like former Soviet Union that people there are now as nostalgic for their Subor clones. As we are for our ZX Spectrums, they were they were so prevalent they completely you know obliterated the competition. That's what people will remember from their childhoods, and and a Subo is as authentic and as genuine and as much a part of their childhood as any ZX Spectrum, Acorn, Apple PC that we had back in the day. Interesting. Well, talking about computers with a cartridge slot, although there was loads of them, like the C sixty four. The Amstrad Plus range is the first one I think of that tried to have cartridges like what you would have in the popular consoles that took over, where there was where there was copy protection in it, where you couldn't just print your own one and stick it in. And that's because Amstrad realized that software piracy was killing computer platforms, and also there was money to be made in selling a cheap computer and then making money every time someone buys a cartridge. So that tried. They, they tried that, but it didn't do very well. Um, what was the name of that copy the, protection? It had a name, didn't it? The Amstrad copy Acid. Protect- acid. That's it, the Acid <laughs> copy protection, yeah. And yeah. Um, in the example of the GX4000 that I've got, the previous owner, what they did was they, oh, and shout out to Agent Orangina who did this, he took the acid chip out of a genuine GX4000 game, hardwired it into the cartridge slot so the acid chip is always connected, 
and then you can just put in a, a burnt EEPROM, a copied game, and oh, it will just load. Clever. But you can also put original games in, so you've effectively got two acid copy chips, and it just works anyway. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't mind that there's two of them. Um, so it wasn't particularly difficult to get by. You just had to own one original game, which you would have had in the form of burning rubber, which came with it. Same with the SNES. I, I remember that- a friend had um, a disk drive for the SNES that he imported from Japan, but you still needed an original cart in the back of it, but then you could mm-hmm. load pirated games from floppy disk uh, and it would load it into memory. Yeah. There's always ways around it if you want to pirate stuff. That's a whole other topic, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, Dave, I know we interrupted. Mark, Mark Fixy Stuff recently did a video where he created a, a an Amstrad GX4000 cartridge and it had uh, an, an alternative to the acid that the GX4000 would test for and then say, yes, you passed the acid test and you're, mm. you're, you're a legitimate game. Um, but as for the the Sound Blaster 2000, um, <laughs> it is a cool thing. Um, and it's funny what a market where copyright doesn't functionally exist. It's funny what happens in those markets because they have to innovate because importing isn't really possible to do. Um, Neil Neil knows much more about it than I do, but it's always mildly interesting when you see what the, the former Soviet Union countries had and what China had, where they had that effectively impossible, unless you're very rich or high up in the party, I'd imagine, to, to import the stuff that we had. We took for granted as Christmas presents. They had to create their own things years behind. But some of the games, some of the homebrew games that come out on the spectrum from Russia are absolutely phenomenal what they're doing with it. Got a collection on the shelf, yeah. I understand it's the same in Brazil with the, is it the, the, the not the Mega Drive? The Master the, System. The Master huge, System, yeah. 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 That, yeah. Famously, that's that's still huge down there and they, they've got their own games and so on. So it's fascinating what um, what they can evolve there when they don't have what, 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 what we've got going on. So that's, I guess that's the interesting part about this. But it, yeah. it's quite quite amusing the way it's shaped like a, like a Famicom when it's, it's so much more going on. Yeah, and it extends way beyond games consoles as well. Um, in, in the former Soviet Union, they saw the IBM mainframe products when they started appearing as a real threat to what they were capable of um, and set, apart, set about on a whole scheme of reverse engineering and, and creating their own version of the equivalent IBM mainframe computers. Uh, and that would have been uh, in collaboration with other communist countries as well who wanted to get that leg up too. So there's a whole fascinating world out there. Um, the more we can learn about it, the better, I think. My first console, as I know I've mentioned before, is the Philips G7000, also known as the Magnafox Odyssey 2. And it says computer on it, and it has a keyboard. And I used to use that in arguing with my mate from up the road, Alex, when he tried to tell me it wasn't a computer. It, was like, it says computer on it, and it's got a keyboard. It's a computer. Yeah, not quite. Did he accept it? No. Um, but the one that may surprise you that I have in mind... Sorry, Neil, go. I was just going to say, can it run Elite? I think that should be the mark of, is it a computer oh, or not? Does it have a version of Elite? I'm so glad you said that, because no, um, it oh. doesn't. But, but, <laughs> I you pull it out. but oh, it has this, which is Cosmic Conflict. What are you conflict. holding up there? Cosmic Conflict. There we go. I've tilted Cosmic it. Conflict. Cosmic Tell Conflict. Tell us about it. So this would be the first ever... Um, you know, cockpit view space game I would have ever played. And I was the only one in my household that could quite get it because obviously inverted flight stick was the controls it used. And it took you a while to get your head around the fact that I'm not controlling the ships on the screen, I'm controlling the square box in the middle. 
and I'm pitching yeah. up or pitching forward or left and right, and you basically these ships come up um, and you have to shoot at them. Um, so that that's my first you know cockpit view space game that I ever played. So on the Philips G seven thousand. So there you go. No, it doesn't have Elite. It does have <laughs> Elite's distant cousin, maybe. Um, you, you just you just went fully back into you know eight year old Chris mode there. Going no, oh, yeah. it doesn't have Elite, but it does have. Uh, it does have this. And it is a computer. What you have, yeah. <laughs> Better than yeah. Elite. And I Better. could do my homework on it. I just choose not to because it can't. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the the one that I'm actually thinking of. This may surprise a lot of people. It's the PlayStation Two. Now, I, I've got longer details on this, but we don't have time today. I actually got to play a PlayStation 2 pre-release at ECTS um, in September 2000, um, which was a trade-only show. And I also got one on release date. And what I remember about the PlayStation 2, it was either on the side box or it was in one of the pamphlets that came inside the box. But there were promises of being able to connect a printer, being able to connect digital cameras and do video editing, all these intentions. And when you think about the device, the PlayStation 2, gorgeous you know, um, device, and at the time, the cheapest way to buy a DVD player as well, later to be repeated in the PS3, which was the cheapest Blu-ray player at the time. Um, but you had a network port, you had Firewire, you had USB ports, you had an IDE port um, for a hard drive inside. Everything was there ready to go. Neil, you want to interject? Yeah, it had a full version of Linux that you could run on it. Um, and mm. I, I was always really excited about that aspect of it. And you would hear stories of governments creating farms of PS2s running Linux mm. to do number crunching on the on the um, whatever processor it was. It was was it the cell? No, that was the PS3. Whatever processor, yeah, it had, the yeah. emotion engine or whatever they called it. And um, uh, I was always like slightly heartbroken because there was this. They completely severed the ability to you know use the the 3d graphics part play games in linux effectively yeah um you could only really do sort of serious things and it was slightly clunky because it was slightly crippled and then in later versions of the ps2 they they took that functionality out altogether didn't they so with the slims um, yeah. it got yeah. me excited and yeah you know, i'm glad i'm not like yeah, i'm glad it's not a missed memory yeah yeah yeah, and and so and, and you could argue something like the the Xbox did the same thing. You know, essentially that was a PC in a console form factor, but just massively throttled and limited in terms of what they allowed you to do. So I really think you know there could have been um, a time where when you think back to things like you know well our eight bit micros, but also moving on to the ST and the Amiga, you clearly you you truly could use that to do your homework and have good fun playing games you know on a capable game system and and they were affordable for the home and then we move forward into this time period where pcs were crazily expensive um so uh, and not necessarily that great at games so you wanted a games console but the games console was so throttled you couldn't have one device to to adequately do both jobs in my view is what i'm is what i'm trying to say so you know to round this up well done subor and the sb2000 for not following suit and actually making it possible to do both um okay so you are playing with an 8-bit technology in a 32-bit world but at least you tried time now for our uh, question of the week i'm having my hand nibbled down here by gizmo next to me um, i'm not quite sure what she wants but uh, oh, just, just to bite me i think anyway um question of the week last week was richard at the mill is creating a retro repair service and we need a name for it do you have any suggestions for a name something catchy but also descriptive p.s neil is in no way abusing his position for market research yes not at all um 
So uh, lots of suggestions and uh, both on the subreddit and being discussed in Discord and privately with Dave. And I know Dave's got a favorite, which I'm sure he'll share with us today. But uh, top of the list today is the rather predictable, I'm slightly disappointed, of course it was going to be there, from uh, Tasta de Murder, I think is the, the username. Um, and they've come up with Repairy Muck Repair Place. That's perfect. I do. <laughs> Done. He's decided. <laughs> he wants to take the next one. Which one is the next one? Chris. Is that Rowan Forest? That's that, on mine, yeah. Or is that a reply? Okay. How about Retro Repair Service? <laughs> and then Plum Creek is replied with, or just Retro Repair. That you know, We're going to just keep fine-tuning it. How about just Retro? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's nothing capacitors. wrong. I like that there's one. nothing wrong with a name that says what it does. I mean, that's that's effective. Um, it needs to be memorable. I know Richard was a little bit cautious about the word retro because when you're talking about retro repairs, you could be talking about vintage cars. You could be talking about all sorts of things. You know, We're trying to be clear, but it's it's difficult. Which is why I'm asking you guys, um, Dave. Do you want to pick a few? Yeah. I'll tell you the, the right one, and this is my idea, uh, and this is the best idea. It is electric dinosaur. Electric dinosaur. <laughs> it's memorable. It's fun. You can make great logos from it, but it, it, it tells you what it does as well. It, talk, it talks about electric dinosaurs, so that, that's what these things are. So it's ideal. You can't pick any with the word retro in it because there's a million different things, the word retro in it. You're going to find all those. But there are some, there are some good ones in here. Richard Fixy Stuff, um, <laughs> Out of Date Tech Repair, uh, Chips and Traces Retro Tech Services, um, and then people, I think people have typed these into chat GPT and got some things out there. Um, but run of the mill, uh, retro repairs. Run of I, the I don't mill. know. Electric oh. dinosaur, electric dinosaur, electric dinosaur, electric dinosaur. <laughs> um, a couple that I, I came up with were... Um, uh, Dr. Phosphor, uh, Age of Amperes, <laughs> Vintage Current. Um, I like another one that someone suggested was Ohm Base, as in O-H-M. Oh, Ohm Base. Base. And we had um, also, I did try Chat GPT and it came up with Ohm Sweet Ohm. So that's not bad. It's not bad. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So thank you, everyone, for your suggestions. And we'll move on to this week's question of the week, which I think Dave will read out for us. Okay. Um, we've talked about games that rely heavily on your imagination. Tell us about your favourite game that has your imagination racing. Which game gets your imagination doing the heavy lifting for you? And this doesn't have to be an old game. It can be old or new. Just no. Games. But we, but we will specify, Dave, video games, yeah? Yes. Video games, <laughs> okay, yeah. video Not video. running. <laughs> or British Bulldogs. Um, go to our go to our subreddit. So www.redditcop.com slash r slash this week in retro. Find the question of the week and submit it there, your answer to it, and the top three answers we will read out on next week's show. Next week's show we've got a guest. Um I'm not sure if I'll be here next week, so I, I, viewers and listeners, please uh, brace yourself from missing a, an episode without Dave. You deserve but, the rest, um, Dave. <laughs> you deserved your rest last week as well. Neil yeah, deserved his you. rest too. Oh, stop being you so can't nice always get all three of us. 
Thank you, as always, everyone, for taking the time to listen or to watch. We are, th at the time of recording this, three subscribers away from, is it 7,000 subscribers? 7,000. We are very close. So uh, if you want to do us a favor, head over to This Week in Retro on YouTube and hit subscribe, and uh, that would really help us. Okay, we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone. It's bye-bye from me. And it's bye-bye from Chris. And it's bye-bye from both of them. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.